Coming up on today's show, I'll be reviewing the series that has taken the internet as well as streaming services by storm, The Mandalorian, and I'll be joined with the co-writers of the film Monsters Anonymous, Jason Robbins and Wally Phelps, will be doing a spoiler-filled review of the first two episodes of the series. So if you haven't seen The Mandalorian yet, go watch it, then come back and check out the podcast. Also, I'll be chatting with writer-director Nathan Ives about his documentary, Somewhere in the Middle, and we asked the question, what is the true measure of success when it comes to working in the entertainment industry? All of that coming up on this week's episode of the Derek Diamond Experience podcast, which starts right now. It is Thursday, November 21st, and welcome back to the Derek Diamond Experience Podcast. And this week, we're going to be talking about a show that's really kind of taken the internet by storm since Disney Plus came out, and that is The Mandalorian, set in the Star Wars universe. And I have not one, but two guests here to talk about the show. First up, we have my co-host on the Nerd Cave Retro Podcast, and one of the co-writers from the film Monsters Anonymous, Mr. Jason Robbins. How are you? And newest permanent co-host on the Derek Diamond Experience. <laughs> Might as well call it Derek Diamond and Jason <laughs> Robbins Experience at this point. Yeah, <laughs> this is what my like my fifth appearance in the last month and a half. Something like that. I've got to count to see the number of appearances you have because you've got to be close to the record. <laughs> I need a raise then. <laughs> <laughs> Me and you both. But also joining us this week is the other co-writer of Monsters Anonymous, Mr. Wally Phelps. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well, and uh, I know I would listen to the Diamond Robbins experience. We'd have to come up with some good topics for that. I don't know what we would discuss. I mean, I guess just movies. We could throw in the occasional... Well, I would say we could throw in the occasional retro (laughs) games, but that's for another completely separate podcast. Right. (laughs) So we're here to talk about The Mandalorian, and this kind of goes back, for me, many years, because I can remember back in the mid 2000s after revenge of the Sith came out, there was no sign of really anything star Wars related, at least live action beyond that point. And I can remember hearing rumors back then about a possible live action TV series, but I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that it would be extremely expensive to make, but then they announced, you know, many, many years later that there's going to be the Mandalorian, which is on Disney Plus. When Disney Plus announced their streaming service, it was I think around that same time frame that they announced the Mandalorian. So when that was announced, and we'll start with Wally, what was your immediate reaction to it? I believe it when I see it. I actually agree with that. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I, over the years, so many different star live action Star Wars projects had been announced and then abandoned, but I was used to it just not happening. So that's really the first thing I thought when I heard this announcement. It's like, well, it's nice that John Favreau is going to get a paycheck, but I don't think this is going to ever come out. Well, you think of just how, like I mentioned earlier, how expensive it would be to make. You, you look at the budget from the movies you can only imagine what a multi-episode, even a mini-series, would be. But what about you, Jason? What was your reaction? 
uh, <clears throat> pretty much the same as Wally's. Like there have been so many different Star Wars projects, especially TV projects that that had been announced and then you know uh, just dropped completely. So when they announced the Mandalorian, I was like, pretty much same as Wally. I'll believe it when I see it. And I was excited that John Favreau was brought on board to develop the show. And you know, I, I got a lot of faith in John Favreau because. He basically created the the MCU by uh, making good decisions for the first Iron Man movie, and um, and I just knew all along. The more I read about the Mandalorian, I was just like, man, if they can just get the tone right, because I don't know if you guys feel this way. I, I still I I like Episode Seven and Eight, but they don't have quite the same tone as the original star wars movies like uh, a new hope and that's the the best thing about the mandalorian is it feels like a new hope yeah i would i would agree with that um i would agree with that statement you know it's the mandalorian from the very first shot it feels almost like a western in a way set in the star wars universe and it it feels like the original trilogy but different enough to where it's not exactly the same, I think. Well, I heard somebody on another podcast I was listening to earlier today talking about it, and they hit the nail on the head when they said the weirdness is back in Star Wars, in Star Wars because the Mandalorian is kind of weird. Like, all the weird stuff that's, that you see, like, they're world-building without slamming you in the face with it because... You know, look at that first episode. There's not a lot of dialogue in that first episode. And they're showing you things that are are familiar, but at the same time still creating mystery. Right. It, it really reminded me of Wally in a way, um, because a majority of the opening was dialogue free from our main protagonist. Um, I mean, it wasn't like, you know, the Wally where everyone was silent, but it, he was very stoic in that first episode. And in a way it also, and, and I know I'm not the first to draw this comparison, but I absolutely saw the parallel between the Mandalorian and the man with no name series. Uh, absolutely. Of course. So, so whenever I saw it, like like the very first scene, it's like, all right, I'm in on this. Well, and you think of when he walks into the bar, it, it was almost like it was straight out of one of those old Clint Eastwood movies. And I, I think that's one of the multiple things that kind of drew me in. In addition to it, just right. overall, like as the the first episode progresses and then it goes even more in depth into the second one, it, it felt like classic Star Wars. You know, all the different aspects of Star Wars feel different. Like the prequels feel very different than the original trilogy. And a lot of people don't look back at the prequels with that fond of memories, but I think they have their good moments. And I think it's good that they are different than the original trilogy, because why would you essentially want to remake the same thing? Then you get into, like Jason was saying, with The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. They feel different than the original trilogy, but again, they should. 
And I think the fact that, you know, The Mandalorian, it takes place, I think, five years after Return of the Jedi. It's not too long after that. So you're still set in that time frame. So to have it be a reflection of that, I I think, is a good thing. And they also, you know, through what what little dialogue there is and, you know, some of the currency exchange and things like that, they let you know that it's basically right now you're you're in a lawless galaxy. You know, the empire is gone. Nobody's really in charge. So everybody's just kind of out for themselves. Like there are different kind types of currency. Like they talked that, you know, he didn't want the Imperial credits, even though the guy said, you know, they still spend and he ends up taking the, uh, the Calamarian, uh, whatever they were called, and just all the little things that happened in that episode that are building this world that, you know, uh, that we saw, that we experienced, like we did with the extended universe through books and comics. We haven't seen anything of this period in the new canon. Mm-hmm. So they're slowly building you know, they're, they're world building and they, they're doing it in a good way. And that's what John Favreau is really good at. Yeah. Uh, you know, the pacing, I think, is key with this show. Uh, a lot of, I think, criticism of the most recent movies was is the fact that it's, they feel more modern uh, than the original Star Wars movies, of course. And th- this has that same, I wouldn't say methodical, but like um, they stretch it out a little bit more than you would normally do in a contemporary uh, film or movie, you know? Yeah. Uh, and and that's what I really like about it is that they let the, the series breathe. The, the show is very short as far as, the episode links, but it, it just seems like they're not trying to, you know, like, uh, I think Derek said it earlier where they're, well, no, I don't know who said it earlier where they're trying to knock you over the head with new stuff. It's like, uh, let's, let's let you take in the scenery. Let's let you take in the atmosphere, let the music tell its story. It, it's, it's really nice how they, how they are making the show. Oh, the music, man. The music is straight out of like some sort of futuristic spaghetti Western because it's not what you would typically call Star Wars music. Like it, it's it's different. It's close enough to, to what you would recognize as traditional Star Wars music, but there's a different element to it. And I like it a lot. It fits the tone of what the Mandalorian is supposed to be. And I can't remember the name of the person who's done the score, but that's something I noticed too, that main theme, how that has that boom, boom, boom. It fits in perfectly with what the Mandalorian is. Like you could totally hear that soundtrack laid over, you know, like a a Clint Eastwood Western. It just, there's just something about it that just, I, I even Wally said like the cinematography and how they just let everything just breathe and unfold at a nice pace. Nothing is like, nothing is at breakneck speed. We're being told a, a slow burn story 
and we're giving like awesome visuals to just drink it all in, you know? Well, there's still plenty of episodes left. I can't remember the exact count, but I know the last episode airs at the end of the year. So yeah. there's still several weeks, and it's even going to continue after Rise of Skywalker comes out. So December is going to be, if you're tired of Star Wars now, you're really going to be tired of it by the end of December. <laughs> Everybody that says they're tired of Star Wars can kiss my grits, because you know what? <laughs> I grew up with Star Wars when I was a kid. I loved it and went through 15 years of nothing before episode one came out. So now we're getting all the Star Wars. Please give me all the Star Wars. Even if it's bad, I want all the Star Wars. <laughs> right. I, I, I'm i in the same boat. I mean, I didn't particularly like episode one. Uh, when I first saw it, although I fooled myself into saying that the problem was me and, uh, but I still went opening day for two and three, you know, it, it, I'm not going to get tired of star Wars. It's impossible. Uh, Mandalorian just feeds that, that monster that's inside of me that craves more star Wars. Well, and that's well, the th oh, go ahead. I, I'm sorry. I was going to talk about what me and you had texted about earlier today about how they're supposed to be announcing a new Star Wars movie and director in January. And I honestly think that this the Mandalorian being a completely different tone than all the Star Wars we've been given so far by Disney. I think this is going to give them the confidence to be able to say, OK, we can do something different with Star Wars. Right. And the thing is, is that I really believe that they just kind of, they really shouldn't have started with Solo as being, you know, the, well, I guess they didn't really start there. They started with uh, Rogue One. Yeah. But at the same time, and Rogue One is like, it's almost my favorite Star Wars movie. Oh, it's so good. And, it's, it is really good. But, you know, Solo came out six months after the last Jedi, uh, which, you know, divided fans and it, it was really quick turnaround on that movie. So we were finally like, yeah, I, I mean, I can go a little bit without a star war at the moment. Um, especially a story that I never asked for, <laughs> but well, here, well, here's the, Here's the thing. I, I think Disney was just when they acquired Lucasfilm, you know, they just wanted to play it safe and just give us fan service and try to make everyone happy. But I think everybody at first was like, oh, this is so great. But now we want to see something different. We want those of us who grew up with the, you know, the the extended universe and like the the anthology books of like Tales from Moss Eisley and Tales of the Bounty Hunters and things like that. Like, give us the the outskirts of star wars you know the people that aren't jedis you know the scoundrels and the, the yeah. bounty hunters we that's the star wars we want to see well i i would love to see a show that's just about jedi <laughs> you know i mean it's not so much that yes i want to see these other aspects of the universe well, we but, got that. It was called the Clone Wars. <laughs> that's, not, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. It's like I'm, I'm talking about like in live action. I'm not talking about the, oh, the yeah. 
the animated. But funny you should mention that Dave Filoni, the director of the first episode, is the guy that created the Clone Wars. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So it makes sense that this is good. <laughs> no, exactly, and I I agree with what both you guys are saying that. In a way, I'm excited to like. I'm very much looking forward to Rise of Skywalker, but I'm just as excited, if not a more, a little more excited, to see what happens afterwards because we are going to go in a different direction that's not so centralized right. to the Skywalker story because it's a big galaxy out there. There's so much that's going on, rather than what's going on with this central set of characters. So. I'm very curious to what they're going to do with this new movie that they're supposed to announce in January because I, I, Jason and I were talking and we were both of the same mindset that I think we'd rather see a few standalone films rather than an entire trilogy. Well, what I I believe that they're still doing a trilogy. Uh, I think uh, Ryan Johnson's trilogy is still going on. They, they already have one of those movies on the release schedule uh, for 2022, I think. So two years from now is when the next Star Wars movie comes out. Um, but from what I've heard uh, from uh, sources that are pretty good, they are, because of the success of The Mandalorian, they're looking into new series that will um, expand upon the universe, which may include uh, a Thrawn series or a uh, series about, well, we know we're getting Obi-Wan, and the reason why we're getting them as series is, number one, they need content for Disney+, Plus, but number two, it's easier to recover the costs of a TV show than it is a major motion picture. Yeah, and I, I think when you really sit down and think about it, you know, I, I was number one fan of, like, Obi-Wan's my all-time favorite Star Wars character. So when they started announcing these spinoff films like Rogue One and Solo, I instantly thought they've got to do an Obi-Wan movie that takes place between episodes three and four. Well, then that got changed to a series and especially now what we've seen with The Mandalorian, I think that's the perfect medium to do it. You could do an 8 to 10 episode. I think it's supposed to be, what, 8 episodes? Yeah, I believe so. It, it tell that story, and there's so much that you could do with Obi-Wan. And I, I would love to see you know other characters as well. I know they're doing one. Um, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but the guy from Rogue One. I think his name's Cassian. Oh, yeah. uh, Cassian. Cassian. Yeah. yeah. They're doing a series about him that takes place before Rogue One. I- I'd love to see more. You know, you mentioned a Thrawn series, possibly. That would be fantastic. Because I know he's been in Rebels, but we've never seen Thrawn in live action. And I know that was a character yeah. that people were so happy that he was brought over from the extended universe when that was, you know, discounted as canon. It's it's an exciting time to be a Star Wars fan um, for people who don't hate themselves. <laughs> the ones who claim that The Last Jedi ruined their entire life and their childhood? Yeah. Right. <laughs> and everyone else's childhood, you just don't realize it yet. <laughs> 
So I guess uh, backtracking to the first episode of The Mandalorian, we've got to touch on the reveal that happens at the end. And I, I've ranted about this numerous times, so I won't get into it because I had it spoiled for me. But the plot of The Mandalorian is he takes this bounty job where he, has, he knows he has to find someone, and the only thing that's revealed is their, their age is 50 years old, and he's given a tracking fob. Well, he lands on this planet and meets... Um, by the way, I think besides the Mandalorian, my favorite character so far has to be um, the Ugnaught played by Nick Nolte. Yeah, I have spoken. <laughs> <laughs> I just that that raspy voice of his that's so distinct. He just does such a good job acting with that character, and his right. interaction with the Mandalorian was great. Yeah, especially in the second episode, <laughs> it's like. Uh... I mean, and we're we're gonna talk about spoilers because oh, of you know we I think we've all been pretty spoiler free up to this point, but uh, yeah, I think it's time to discuss the spoilers. <laughs> but my my favorite exchange in the whole thing was uh, they don't seem to like you very much. <laughs> well, I did disintegrate a couple of them. <laughs> <laughs> That and the very end when he's helping the Mandalorian fix his ship. And he says, mm-hmm. you know, we have to take this to a, a full facility because this is going to take days. And he says, it would go faster if you would actually help. Right. <laughs> so the end of the first episode. So Mandalorian meets IG-11, who is voiced by uh, Taito Watiti, who is known for directing Thor Ragnarok and was also in Jojo Rabbit, which he does a fantastic job in. They find their their target, and it's a baby Yoda. And I say baby Yoda because they've never revealed the name of his species. Yeah, I mean, one of the a baby Yaddle or Yaddle, yeah. Well, it's just the only other one we've seen on screen. I do have to say that entire shootout sequence with uh, the Mandalorian and IG Eleven was awesome. Oh, especially <laughs> when the Mandalorian gets the turret gun. Yes. Uh, I was so freaking. And that shot. That was great. That shot where they open the giant door and they kick it down, and it's just the two of them standing side by side, and you see the light yeah. shining in. That shot was Perfect. freaking great. One of my favorite shots of the entire series so far. Yeah. I love that. I love that uh, little piece where he, he like pops out. He's ready to go, but he sees that turret, <laughs> that, that rail gun. He's like, oh, okay. <laughs> so. <laughs> I shall self-destruct. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you guys think? What was your reaction when you saw Baby Yoda? I thought Baby Yoda was the cutest damn thing I'd ever seen yeah. in my entire life up until that point. And I was just like, immediately, as soon as I saw the, you know, the Mandalorian uh, shoots IG-11 in the head because IG-11 was going to take the, the child in dead, was going to shoot him. And he shoots IG-11 through the head. I was like, all right, so we've got the mercenary with a heart. So right. this is going to get interesting. Well, there's a flashback earlier in the episode where we see a little bit of the Mandalorian's backstory. And you find out that he's essentially an orphan. So I think he, in a way, relates and sympathizes with Baby Yoda. And that's why he saved him. Yeah, because yeah, not many of the Mandalor- uh, Mandalorians left. And and I think I think for people who know a little bit about them, 
the the show shows off so much that we knew about Mandalorians in canon that we just never seen before. And you know, I, I love how almost D and D like the show is, where he 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 does a quest, gets his riches goes and gets new armor from the armor smith. You know, he, he goes on another quest. He has to go on a side quest to go to, to, to be able to, you know, it, it, it just, I'm like, man, this would be a great D&D campaign. Yeah. No, it would be great, actually. I think that's another thing that, that makes us like the show so much is because it does have that art, uh, that video game RPG quality to it. Oh, I could totally see this as a video game. Oh yeah, I I cannot wait for this to be a video game. Day one Red purchase. Dead Mandalorian. Yes, <laughs> that's great. All right, so we get into well, well, first before we dive into what happens in episode two, what's your guys? Because there's a lot of fan theories on what Baby Yoda is or how he came to be. I know we're only two episodes in, but what what's your guys' first take on that? I don't like having a take on these types of things because <laughs> it's always belongs. There's no reason for me to do that. Uh, you know, it, it sets up what I like to call anticipation, which is a uh, word I learned from coasterradio.com. Ding. And uh, what it essentially is, you build up your headcanon so much that it, it, once they do what they're going to do and it's not what you wanted them to do, it's like, well, fuck this thing. I'm sorry. I said, I, I That's fine. But, but, uh, it's, but if I were to speculate, I, I really, I really think this might be the last of the, whatever Yoda is. And, and the empire, uh, the, well, the remnants of the empire that knows about it, uh, they're trying to get it so they can either destroy it or or perhaps use it as a weapon. Baby Yoda is, they said he was 50 years old, which basically puts him around the age of <clears throat> um, episode one. So it's quite possible that he could be a clone of Yoda or Yaddle or both. Um, because the doctor in the first episode, um, there was, had, uh, Camino and robes or something like that. Mm -hmm. However you say it. And those mm -hmm. were the cloners in episode two. So I think we're looking at a clone situation where baby Yoda could possibly be a clone of either Yaddle or Yoda. Uh, you know, I wonder if, cause Yoda and Yaddle are both alive while this child is alive. So I wonder if they, if they knew about him or her or whatever, or what? It's a really good question. I don't know, but I have a feeling we're going to have a lot of twists and turns along the way. Oh, absolutely. And if you get it wet, will it multiply into other ones? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Yoda is actually named Gizmo in this show. <laughs> I, I I think if I had to guess right now, I agree with the clone route. To me, it makes the most sense 
but who knows? You know, I'm I, I also I I agree with Wally's point that I'm just kind of along for the ride and I just want to see what happens. But it, it's fun to speculate, but like you said, Jason, there's going to be a lot of twists and turns along the way. Then, which then leads into the second episode when the Mandalorian has to go get the, um, the Mudhorn egg in exchange to get his ship parts back because the Jawas essentially strip his ship of everything. Which that's another thing too is like, do, are Jawas just on every single desert planet in the galaxy? Well, I'm going to say, I think that's Tatooine he's on, that planet. I think that's Tatooine. Like a different section of Tatooine that we've just not seen before? Yes. Because why would the Jawas... No, they didn't say at all. And why would Jawas... I don't think Jawas are a spacefaring species, so how could they be on separate planets? That is true. I mean, in the prequels, they... Because what, the the city that... um, Anakin lived in was what Mos Espa and not yeah. precisely. So yeah, I mean, Tatooine is a big enough planet where they could just go to a completely unrelated section of it. I- I'm sure at some point, if it is Tatooine, they'll reveal it, but I, I don't know if he's going to go back to that planet though. But when he lands, yeah, it looks, so. it does look a lot like Tatooine. Right. That whole exchange between him and the uh, the Jawas when he's trying to get his stuff back and they want his best, what do they call it? Best far armor? Best far armor, armor or whatever. And he says no. And then he tries to speak Jawa to him and they start laughing at him and they say he sounds like a Wookiee. That whole conversation I was cracking up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, and it's little humorous moments like that that break up you know, what otherwise would be a very serious show, but I think the humor has been damn near perfect in both episodes that I've seen. Oh, yeah. Because it's not in-your-face humor. It's just, it's, I don't know, it's a different, it's that kind of humor that just sort of like, just things will just ring as funny, you know? Situational humor. Yeah, yeah. But it feels natural and not forced. Exactly, exactly. Um, it, it's it's not like you know Jar Jar's head getting stuck in in the middle of the engines. Or, yeah, you know, that, that that kind of thing. It, it it's appropriate for the tone. And there was well, another part too. It reminds me of that uh, uh joke. You know, we keep on talking about how he it's like a Clint Eastwood western. Those had funny moments in it, even though they were very serious movies, you know, yeah. uh, the scene at the end of the movie where he's got, uh, he's got the ugly guy, uh, digging the hole. And uh, yeah. he, that whole scene starts out. It's like, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's people who have hold guns. There's people who dig. And he throws the, throws the shovel at the guy and says, you dig, you know, that kind of humor. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there was another part that made me laugh, too, whenever he, he catches the Jawas stealing the stuff off of his ship. And, you know, he's chasing after the the sand crawler and he, he jumps onto the side of it. And, you know, he's fighting with them and they're they're popping out all the little hatches, throwing stuff at him. And, and, I'm, and I'm just sitting there like, well, what happened to baby Yoda? Did he just leave him back there in the egg? And then they like actually put in a shot of the egg that, that uh, he's in the little pod is following because yeah. he's got like, you know, a, 
some sort of link where it follows him around. And I don't know why, but that one, it, when it cut to the shot of the baby Yoda inside of his pod, and it's just like going along at like 80 miles an hour, you know, like 90 <laughs> miles an hour. Like that just made me laugh when that happened. It, it was, it was damn hilarious. It's just, you know, that, baby Yoda just has some of the funniest scenes because he, in that scene, he just chilling, sitting back, enjoying yeah. the wind through his ears. <laughs> well, and there's the scene a little bit earlier when he eats the frog too. Right. That, that was really funny. Spit, Spit that, that out. out. <laughs> Frog's as big as him, and he swallows it whole. But um, anyway, when the Mandalorian is fighting the the Mudhorn, we see that Baby Yoda is force sensitive because he uses pretty much everything in his being to stop, basically levitate the mud horn midair, but then loses power, you know, basically collapses due to exhaustion. And that gives just enough time for the Mandalorian to kill the mud horn. So it, it could be one of those things where if it's a Yoda clone, it makes sense for him to be force sensitive, but it also could be a thing that all of Yoda's species, however extremely rare they are, are force sensitive, which would also right. make sense as to yeah. why what's left of the empire wants to find him. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's also the part two later on around the campfire when he keeps getting out of the pod and, you know, the Mandalorian sitting there doing triage on himself because he's been injured. And, uh, the, the baby Yoda is like reaching up, trying to heal him. And he keeps putting him back in the pod. And it's just all these little things that, you know, are building this relationship between the two of them that I think that in few, we're, we're going to get to a point where, you know, he's going to probably not turn in the child or he's going to try to protect them or he's going to turn them in and then regret his decision because we realize at this point that he's going to be, you know, the Merc with a heart. Yeah. The Merc with a heart. <laughs> I like that. I don't know, man. He wouldn't let that dude go for life day. <laughs> God, that guy yeah, was such that a loudmouth. As cute as a baby Yoda, though. That's true. Oh, that was he something. Was else, that's something else I wanted to bring up too. I thought the basically the portable carbonite freezing was pretty badass. That was a nice touch. I love the realization in the guy's face when he's like, "Oh, I'm gonna, I'm about to okay." <laughs> so I'm not going to make it to Life Day. Probably not. Nope. <laughs> And he's frozen, and then yeah, he so delivers. To... Then he delivers him to Apollo Creed. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Anytime I see Carl Weathers in something, I just instantly think Apollo Creed. Well, he's a he makes I'm... a great Star Wars character too. <laughs> oh, he he was really good for in his little man. Uh, Wonder Herzog was really good. Oh, in, yeah. In the show. That dude, I would watch that dude. I want to watch him and uh, the, what was the guy's name from Halloween 3 that played... Uh, uh, O'Connell Cochran. O'Connell Cochran, the guy that played Connell Cochran. I want to watch a movie with those two guys and all they have to do is just sit there and just like c converse for two hours and I want to watch that movie. Right. You know you'd want them to just sing the Silver Shamrock theme for two hours. Oh yeah, I would watch that. <laughs> <laughs> So all in all, um, what's been your, as we start to wrap up here, 
do you think this the Mandalorian from what little bit we've seen would you say it's the best Star Wars content we've gotten since Return of the Jedi I'll go ahead and say it I, I honestly think it's the best thing we've gotten since Return of the Jedi as far as live action stuff uh, you know I'm I don't know because I really love Rogue One um it it has potential to be my favorite thing since Return of the Jedi, but Rogue One is just amazing. <laughs> so it's it, it, they had the cojones to end that movie the way they did and put one of the greatest Darth Vader scenes on film. And you know it, it it was and it was good. <laughs> the only problems I had with that movie were the weird plasticky uh, Peter Cushing and uh, the um, yeah that's it. <laughs> and, uh, it was it was great. Uh, so Mandalorian uh, being the best thing right now, it's too early to say for me. I can respect that. Yeah, it, it, mentioning the whole Peter Cushing thing from Rogue One, it, it's crazy to see how like CG and de aging has advanced even since then. Right. Yeah. Because I, I know I know Jason, you've seen it, but in Terminator Dark Fate, they do some de aging yeah. that is that looks just incredible. Probably the best I've seen so far of yeah. the de aging stuff uh, was was definitely Dark Fate. Easily. But yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll agree with Wally because last week, you know, Rogue One was, other than The Mandalorian, Rogue One was the first thing I watched on uh, uh, Disney Plus. And God, that movie is so good. It, uh, I hate the hate that that movie gets from people because that movie is good. Yeah, I have friends really, who don't really like good. it. And it's crazy to think because you know, I remember not too long ago I was talking with, you know, some cr- friends in a group chat. And a couple were like, yeah, I didn't really care for Rogue One. I'm like, why? It's got everything you would want in a good Star Wars movie. And like Wally mentioned, it has one of, if not the coolest Darth Vader scene on film. I remember geeking out like crazy. When when you see his saber ignite, I'm just like, oh my God, he is about to murder everyone in that room. Dude, even still... I've seen that movie like five times now, and every time that scene happens, and he's going, he's just tearing ass through that room, and the dude is screaming through the door to take the, you know, the data card. I'm just like, my butt is clenched so hard during <laughs> right. that scene. I'm just that like, is a horror movie. Scene. <laughs> yes, it is. exactly. They are trapped in a hallway with a monster, and he is going <laughs> to kill us. Yeah. That, uh, the last, you know, a quarter of that movie, like that whole third act is like, I always say that, that, you know, the third act of Return of the Jedi is still the best because of, you know, those three action sequences going on at the same time, you know, the battle for Endor, the, you know, the, the surface battle, and then you've got Dar- Darth Vader and Luke fighting all at the same time. And it's just an editing it would that would be an editing nightmare to have right. to put yeah. that together, but the, the it, end it, of it, Rogue it, One, 
it's got a lot of emotional punch to it too. And that's, yeah. that's whenever you're cutting away from everything to have that level of oomph to the Darth Vader Luke, uh, lightsaber sequence is nothing short of a miracle. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the, you know, that last quarter of rogue one is just, it's so good. And, and I still scream every time gold leader shows up. He's like gold leader standing by. I'm like, there's my boy. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and then he's like, what are you doing? Red five. And I'm like, that's your ass. Red five. <laughs> Such a cool little nod. Right. That's one of my favorite things about that movie too, is that they found that footage that was never used. And was like, you know what? Let's use it. Yep. I might watch Rogue One after we finish this podcast. I think I'm going to watch it too. <laughs> and it's all going to be 99 is a great damn droid too. Yeah. That's true. Last thing I want to ask you guys before we get out of here. I mentioned at the beginning that you guys co-wrote a film called Monsters Anonymous. So um, why don't you guys talk a little bit about it because it's actually going to be playing here in Pensacola on Saturday, December 21st at this, uh, it doesn't have an actual title yet, but it's like a mini Gulf Coast film festival. So uh, mm-hmm. why don't you guys talk a little bit about Monsters? Go for it, Wally. Uh, Monsters Anonymous is a movie that we co-wrote with a gentleman by the name of Jeremy Lennon, uh, starring the star of Clerks and the recent movie, Jay and Silent Bob reboot Mr. Brian O'Halloran as Dracula as they are going to a round-robin therapy session to get over the fact that they're not scary anymore to contemporary audiences. And at the end of the whole thing, uh, they all learn a valuable lesson in afterlife. Love it. As for those who haven't seen it, it's... A very funny movie, and I'm not saying that because I'm friends with both of you, but I truly enjoyed the movie. And if you well, can't get to the uh, the screening on the 21st on the 21st of December, it is available to watch right now on Amazon Prime. Right, and uh, you know they keep on sending us those penny checks, so it's going to be great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, but we will be at the screening to uh, shake your hand, kiss kiss your baby. Um, I'm sure you won't mind. And uh, <laughs> we uh, are going to do a Q&A, uh, apparently, I think. Yep. yep. Are, okay. So, uh, yeah, if you have questions about it, like, uh, you know, uh, how is this so awesome? And uh, why are you the greatest looking man on the Gulf Coast? Then you can come down. And I will have uh, posters available, too. We do have some uh, cast and crew signed posters that we still have that will be available for just a, a measly 15 bucks. I need one of those. Well, you shall have one. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, guys, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast and talk about The Mandalorian. It was great. Dude, thank you. I've been wanting to talk about this for a week now. I feel so much better. It's off of my chest now. (laughs) Stick around for my conversation with writer-director Nathan Ives. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 
Happy to be joined with the writer and director of the documentary Somewhere in the Middle, Mr. Nathan Ives. How are you today? Uh, doing very well, thanks. Awesome, awesome. So before we really dive into uh, your documentary, which I, I had the pleasure of watching last night and really excited to talk about it because I, I think it gives a, a really good message for people who want to work in the entertainment industry. Where are you originally from and what was it that made you want to work in the crazy world of filmmaking? Yeah, you know, I'm originally from uh, Swannanoa, North Carolina, which is a small town outside of Asheville in the western mountains of the state. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I really never thought about being a filmmaker um, probably until I was in my mid-20s. Uh, I went to college uh, at Guilford College in Greensboro, North Carolina. And my best friend um, at the time and still now, um, when we graduated, he said, hey, I'm going to Los Angeles to write screenplays. Do you want to go? And, you know, I was not a very good student, so I didn't have any companies knocking down my door to, uh, to give me jobs and sound like a good idea. And I was playing music at the time <clears throat> and thought I could kind of extend it out to California. And so, you know, uh, right after graduation, we came out to L.A., I guess it was 1994, and um, got an apartment and I started playing music and he was writing screenplays. And we wrote one together, I guess, 1997 or eight called Dish Dogs and pretty quickly sold it. And uh, it got made, and I, I won't say it was a great movie, but, you know, we were at the time proud of it and proud of the sale. And, uh, you know, I thought, God, this screenwriting thing's great. You write a script and sell it, and off you go. And um, so I kind of dove in from there and then took another 10 years to sell another script. But, you know, that's the, that's the way it goes sometimes. But, uh, you know, that's really where I kind of got started in it. And then sometime around 2012, I guess I had sold a couple of indie scripts and um, been involved as a producer on a few films. And then really wanted to do my own. So um, I directed It's Not You, It's Me in 2012. And uh, I've done, I guess, uh, this is my fourth film since. That's awesome. And you mentioning you going to Los Angeles with your friend. I tell people that it's not always necessarily about the skill that you have, because that is very important, but also the timing and the way things work out that way. So, you know, it may have been completely different had you not just randomly decided to, to go with your friend to Los Angeles. So timing, I think, is very important. Oh, without question. I mean, it's interesting. You know, I, I think of that often in life. You know, if I had made such and such a different decision, had I gone to a different college or had, uh, you know, my Ashley, my best friend, and I lived in the same dorm. So had we not lived in the same dorm, you know, there's so many, uh, yeah, I guess, you know, roads in life that can go different directions and completely change the outcome. But yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased with the way it did turn out. So it's good. When you wrote your first script, when it was done, did you catch what they call, you know, the bug or say it, it was almost like a drug in your system that once, once you do it, it's like, you don't want to do anything else. Boy, I, I can't honestly say that I did. Once we sold it, I think, you know, at the time, I think we got, I want to say $25,000 each for it or something, which, you know, when you're 24, broke living in Los Angeles. That seems like a gold mine. Of course, it was gone six months later. I'm not entirely sure to where, but, <laughs> you know, it was, uh, yeah, I, I think after we sold it and then, you know, it's kind of getting made and I kind of got the bug then of just, I guess, the industry. I don't know. Um, now as a writer, I've written, I think, 30 some odd scripts. Um, now I definitely have the bug. I love to write. Um, I love the process and there's nothing better than, you know, seeing your words up on screen. Well, it's almost like you get to create this world that you then watch unfold you know if you go on set you see the actors portraying the characters and saying the lines that you wrote and then getting to see it on the big screen and whatnot it's it's like you're putting a puzzle together but it's your puzzle that is ultimately what is on the screen 
It very much is. And I think one of the biggest joys for me, particularly as a director and, and writer, um, is seeing what the other people you surround yourself with bring to the story. And that can get, be from, you know, whether it's costumes to makeup to art design and I guess particularly the actors, you know, so oftentimes I'll write a script and if I'm lucky enough to get it produced, I'm always amazed at how much better the actors make it than it even was in my head. Um, and that's the, that's pure joy to me. It's just such a, such a thrill to see that happen where your words come to life, but then somebody brings something to it that you never quite imagined. Well, I've noticed in my experience, too, that when you write lines and you, you kind of have it in your head how it should be portrayed on screen. But like you said, when you're even going through rehearsals with actors, they can add their own little twist of you know whether it's their own personality or it's something that they came up with themselves. And when they do it, sometimes you just think, well, that's so much better than I could have ever imagined. Yeah, it really is. And it, it sort of irritates you a little bit. <laughs> no, that, that <laughs> like, really, too. Like, I couldn't have seen that. Like, that seems so simple, but it's so brilliant. And it wasn't my idea. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, well, that, yeah, that was my next idea. That's what I'm <laughs> right. <laughs> so transitioning from, you know, you wrote, you wrote some scripts and then you decided to become a director. What was it that made you want to step behind the camera as a director? And what was that like your first time doing it? Um. You know, I, I guess having sold a few scripts and had some movies made, there was just a real disconnect between what I wrote on the page and what wound up on screen. And that's not to say it was better or worse necessarily, but just to say that it was it was different than what I had imagined it to be. And I guess I I wanted to do something that was all my own and that what I wrote is what wound up on the screen for better or for worse. And um, so, you know, I kind of took that plunge and I, boy, I just scraped together the budget through, you know, I got a corporation together and did the, you know, did a, a business plan and all that stuff. And from eight or 10 different sources uh, scraped together, it's about a $200,000 budget. And um, yeah, for the first time as a director, um, I had no idea what I was doing. And I look back and I think, well, that's too bad. I didn't know what I was doing. I could have made that a lot better. Um, but at the time, uh, just a lot of fun. It was, it was great to be on set and great to be, as we mentioned earlier, seeing my words come to life, you know, directly. Um, and, uh, it's, you know, I, I, I love directing. I, it's, it's, uh, my favorite part of the job. If I, you know, between writing and directing, I both, I have a real love of, but, um, I would say if I had my choice, uh, directing is where it's at. Yeah, I would say so too. It's, it's interesting because almost every filmmaker that I talk to mentions, you know, their time on set and how much they love it and that it, you almost become like a small family in a way because you spend so much time together. You know, you could spend upwards of, you know, 12 plus hour days on set, especially if you're shooting for multiple days. You really get to you're almost forced to, you know, connect with, you know, your crew members, your actors. But it's cool in a way because it's like a little family. Very much so. And if you're lucky enough to surround yourself with people you like and enjoy working with, you know, it's, it's been said before, but it's kind of like going to summer camp when you were a kid. You know, you get three weeks or whatever your shoot is on this is really fun, hopefully, uh, thing with a bunch of people you enjoy. And it doesn't get a whole lot better than that. No, for sure. And it makes the long days, you know, well worth it. Because if you yeah. if you were there with a bunch of people that you don't like, it's going to be a very miserable experience. So I always tell people, if you're going to be on set for however many hours you are, you might as well make it fun. Yeah, no doubt. So transitioning into your documentary, Somewhere in the Middle, what was it that inspired you to, to make this project? 
you know, it's interesting. I, um, so I got off, I, my last film was, um, I was hired to write and direct, uh, co-write and direct, uh, called The Basement, a horror film. And, you know, I was uh, never a big horror guy, and it was a new genre for me, and I had a lot of fun, learned a whole lot. Um, it was a long shoot and a long process, and I think by the end of it, I was pretty, just burned out and tired. And um, I also was, I had my second child shortly after that. And so I kind of needed a project that I could do. Uh, in and around changing diapers. And also I kind of wanted to do something uh, small and that also was my own again, um, if that makes any sense. And the the idea came from um, Griffin House as a musician uh, who wrote, I was a fan of, and then he wrote um, some music for a Christmas movie I did, uh, Christmas in New York. And um, we just kind of became uh, friends, I'd say. And you know, I'd come see him when he was in town playing shows and we'd chat. And uh, one conversation he was... Um, uh, mentioned that you know he's playing a show recently at the at the uh, uh, new york city winery it's about 300 seat show and sold out and great show and then <clears throat> after the show he was you know talking to people and stuff and he said this happens frequently and a couple came up and said man you know we love you we love your music we just know you're going to make it one day and you know <laughs> you know griffin's got owns his house in nashville he's got two wonderful kids and a wife and you know he supports them playing music is what he does and you know it was he kind of laughed but i i, I sense that he's a little annoyed rightfully so about it like you know look i've been doing this for two decades this is my this is my career this is what i do and it really got me thinking about what success means as an artist and the perception of success um that uh, people in general have about artists and uh it was something i couldn't stop thinking about you know i'd be sitting at a red light and think about it in the shower and i thought you know eventually i thought you know i'd really like to explore this further and and so that was kind of the seed of the idea and then it was kind of a matter of going from there and finding the artists and putting it all together well, that's the fascinating thing about doing a documentary is you're telling real life stories. You know, doing writing a script for a short or a feature where you come up with the characters and everything is is all well and great. But documentaries are fascinating in that way that in a way you think that could be me sitting on the screen, you know, sharing your story. And I, I think it's something that a lot of entertainers and it, it's explored in the documentary, whether you're an aspiring actor or a musician, artist, really anything in the entertainment field, you ask yourself the question, what is success? Is it being on the level of a Brad Pitt or a Leonardo DiCaprio where everyone knows who you are? You know, you make all these millions of dollars, but you can't really go anywhere on your own without being bombarded by people. Or is it doing what you love to do? So I think it's a good question to ask. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And that was really what drew me to it in a lot of ways. And, and I think, you know, as, as an artist myself, it's, and this is something I think the documentary and the people in the documentary really taught me more than ever. I think I'd kind of had a sense of it before, but hadn't really honed it down. But, you know, really, whatever project you're going into, or if you're deciding to maybe choose it as a career, really defining what success is, whether it's for that individual pro uh, project or whether it's, you know, a, a lifelong career and, and defining that for yourself. And, you know, if, if it means, you know, I'm only successful if I'm Leonardo DiCaprio, that's fine. And just knowing that, you know, if that doesn't happen, then, you know, that was your goal and, and you, you set your, um, set your sights, if you will. But I think it's, it's more realistic as a, as an artist who wants to make a living to say, you know, if I'm able to make a legitimate living, pay my bills, that's a real success. No, absolutely. And from, you know, my limited experience of making films and I, I don't do it as a career, you know, eventually I, I hope to at some point. But I know that when you when you enter a field like that and it's discussed 
in, in the various stories in the documentary, it's really not easy, and you have to make a lot of hours and a lot of sacrifice in order to make it happen. So it's one of those things that, as I was saying earlier with film, if it's something that you don't truly love, chances are you're going to get burned out on it really quickly, and it was something that, in the end, you didn't want to do anyway. I couldn't agree more. I think that's another important piece of it is that, you know, really deciding if, if, if you're if you're thinking about a career as an artist, really deciding what your motivation is. And if you can dig down deep and say, you know, I truly love the work, you know, I love painting or I love acting or whatever it is. It's I'm doing it because I love doing it by all means. But if you can be honest with yourself and the reason is because you want to be wealthy or famous or these other things, as you say, I think a you're going to burn out pretty quickly, and, and b if you if you want to be wealthy, there's a lot of other <laughs> better avenues, you know, whether it be Wall Street or entrepreneurship or whatever whatever it is, uh, to make money. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think really really defining um, you know, why it is you're doing it is is super important. Well, it's also just not easy in general, especially if you're doing it as maybe if it starts out as a hobby. You know, I'll use this podcast as an example. You know, I have a normal nine to five job that I work and then I come home, I'll do research for, say, like this interview with you. I'll do research and I'll try and watch some examples of your work so that, you know, I know what I'm talking about. And that takes time. Same thing with film. You write your script, you plan out your budget, you do casting. If you add all that into a normal job, it takes a lot of time. So that's just something you have to ask yourself. It is. And I think that it's, it's, you know, I, I was a full-time artist, I guess, for about three years <clears throat> where my, my, you know, all of my income was from, was from filmmaking. And, uh, you know, for a lot of the reasons discussed in the documentary, it, it, it wasn't for me. Um, I now do films and I've got a, a business on the side that, you know, that uh, my wife has a good, <clears throat> my wife has a good job in healthcare and uh, I've got a business that, you know, pays a good bit of our, our mortgage and the rest of it. So my filmmaking these days is um, not as stress-filled as it was. And um, I, I enjoy it more now than I ever have because I don't have the stress of I've got to get that next job or I've got to sell that next script so that we can pay our mortgage and feed our family. And that's that's just not fun. Well, it sounds like you had that self-awareness to know what would work and what wouldn't work, which that's something that you have to you know ask yourself too when you're in this type of situation. Yeah, for sure. And I think that that's, you know, I, I think one of the most difficult things in life is to ch uh, change a path you're on. And, you know, I mean, I, I think I was too much of the mindset of, you know, well, if I don't, if I'm not able to, you know, make a living as a filmmaker, make it big and, you know, make all this money, I'm, I'm just a failure. And, um, you know, what I realized is I was kind of miserable. I was doing a lot of jobs that I didn't want to do, um, films that I didn't really believe in. And, and, um, you know, it, for me, that wasn't uh, what I had set out to do. I guess I had set out to hopefully express myself and to, to have a voice to be heard. And, and what I found was that a lot of times you take a job to pay the mortgage and nothing wrong with that whatsoever. I believe me, I get it. Um, but for me, it wasn't, I, I was happier doing other things, working at other things to make money than I was being on set doing a film that I didn't want to be doing. Right. And it's even mentioned, you know, the, the actress that you interviewed mentioned that she wouldn't take jobs if she didn't you know, believe in the art. I admired that, that, you know, you have that stance of what you will do and what you will not do. 
Yeah, and Jazika uh, Nicole is, is the actress, and she's she's a wonderful person, actress, and she's fantastic. Um, but yeah, and she's I think has gotten to a point in her career, and and she said, you know, I, there have been times in my life that I have done that, but I'm to a point in my career now where I don't have to, and I don't. And um, boy, what a what a great place to be. Absolutely. Kind of diving into the technical aspect of the documentary, you had mentioned, you know, having to find these, you know, artists actors, musicians to, to share their stories. How did you get in contact with them? And what did you notice different about doing this documentary as opposed to, you know, doing a script for a feature or, or a short film? Yeah, it's, um, so the, the artists, uh, so Griffin, I reached out to first since the idea was, you know, sort of started with him and he was gracious enough to come on board. And then Jazika, I had done, Jazika uh, Nicole, I had done another film with. So she was my second call. And she, again, was uh, kind enough to come on board. And from there, um, let's see, uh, I'm good friends with uh, Matt Nathanson's tour manager and Aaron Tapp, who is uh, Matt's guitar player. Um, my buddy said, hey, Aaron would be a great interview. You should interview Aaron. And so I, I did. And he was fantastic. I really enjoyed him very much. And then um, uh, the director of photography on the film knew uh, Jeff Nishinaka and recommended him. And so Jeff is the paper sculptor. And so we interviewed Jeff and Jeff said, hey, I know somebody else would be great if you need an interview. And that's Dan McCaw, an impressionist. And um, so really it was, uh, you know, sort of asking friends, but the universe sort of looking out for me and leading me in the right directions, if you will. And that was kind of how I came up with the with the five. And I guess I did eight interviews in all and the, the, chose these five. They felt, felt like they best told the story that I was, wanted to tell. And as far as being different from the narrative, um, yeah, it's interesting. The, the, the process for me was very similar, but also very different. I guess similar in the fact that so basically I had, say, 15, 20 hours of footage of these interviews, and I went through and pieced, you know, got all the pieces that I really liked, the, whether it was a, an idea or, a, you know, something, that, a specific line that they said. And I wrote them all down in index cards and then, you know, stood for many a night over my dining room table with all these index cards laid out, you know, a cup of Earl Grey tea in hand. And, um, you know, just kind of built the story uh, with these index cards. And I want this and this here and let's move this here. And it's the same way I write scripts. When I write scripts, I, you know, I lay out the index cards and here's my characters and here's the scenes and so forth. So that part was very, very similar. Um I think it, for me, it was a little easier in a way to do the documentary because you weren't having to um, come up with dialogue. You weren't having to come up with, um, you know, ideas for, um, you know, who the characters were and that sort of thing. Uh, so it was easier in that way. I think it was more difficult for the same reason. It's, it's more constraining because what you have is what you have. Um, you can mess around with the structure and so forth, but you really, you know, you don't have a whole lot of leeway otherwise. So, yeah, it was, uh, again, in some ways similar, in some ways very different. Um, I enjoy both for different reasons, and it's, um, it's, uh, I definitely would like to do another. Yeah, there's something about, as I was mentioning earlier, watching you know, a really fulfilling documentary, whether it's on, like, say, National Geographic or on Netflix, because you're hearing a real story, and if it's especially a topic that you can relate to, like this one was for me, you really get something out of it. And I'm not saying you don't get anything out of a narrative because I definitely think, you know, that does happen, but there's something about the real people telling the real stories. And if it's something that you can relate to, it's really inspiring in a way. Like I, I was actually 
inspired after watching this documentary because you have I've only got one short film under my belt, but it makes me feel more confident in being like, you know what, I can do this. Yeah, well, and, and believe me, that means the world to, to hear you say that because um, that's really, you know, there's a lot of reasons that I wanted to make it, and my, you know, selfishly just because it was a, a, something that I wanted to explore, but also, you know, my hope when my hope was when it was done that it would be an inspiration for folks or an education or, you know, help them in their, their own journey, artistic journey. And it's great to hear that, that, that on some level that, that helped for you. Well, because if you think about it, you don't really know of too many documentaries, at least that I'm not aware of that really deal with what's called the measure of success, because it means so many different things to so many different people. You know, some people might honestly do what they're doing just purely for the fame. But sure. but you know there are some who are truly passionate. You know I, I felt the I felt the passion from all the people that you interviewed. You know I thought you know Jeff the the paper sculptor like his work was incredible. And I'm envious of artists because you know I would love to be able to just you know sit down and I know it takes a lot of time to do, but to create you know these really incredible paintings or sculptors that's it's fascinating to me because one I don't really know anything about it. And two, I know it's a skill set that I don't really have. So seeing other people do it, you know, is is inspiring. No, it really isn't. Uh, Jeff Nishinaka, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. His work, his work is just incredible. And for those of you, for those of you out there listening, uh, do yourself a favor and uh, Google Jeff Nishinaka, and uh, it's his work is is really uh, just second to none. But um, I hope so, and I hope that you know, I hope hope that people see it, and hope that people enjoy it and then you know it's it's um we had it was you know as with all films i've done i look back and think boy i wish i'd have done this a little different or that a little different but i I think while there are some certainly some technical things that i wish i would have been more aware of um i think as far as the message and as far as the artists that i was lucky enough to to have participate um there's nothing i would change there i think that you know they had a lot of really good things to say and that can be inspiring educating um you know, not only about art necessarily, but also about life just in general. I think there's some real pearls of wisdom in there. And um, yeah. No, there definitely is. What was your biggest takeaway from your experience of making Somewhere in the Middle? Uh, boy, that's a good question. Um, I think it was really just for my own, for my own career, um, really defining it more and really um, thinking about what is it, and I guess it's getting back to what I was talking about earlier, which is really defining, uh, defining success project by project. And so for me now, I, I think to myself, okay, what's my next project? And um, if I'm hired to do something, um, and maybe it's a film I don't particularly want to do or whatever, but I think, boy, it'd be great because I'm going to make some money and it can go in the kids' college fund. And you know, they're going to benefit from that down the road and I'll do the best job I can and, and work hard for these, these folks. Um, and that so success in that situation would be, you know, doing the best work I can do, given the circumstance and receiving this money that's going to help my kids go to college one day or remodel the bathroom or whatever it might be. And knowing that going in and, you know, and, and understanding that about it. And or on the other hand, if I'm doing something that, you know, like 
somewhere in the middle that, you know, my wife and I are financing and I did a co-production with the garrison. So they helped a lot with that. And they're fantastic to work with post house. And, um, yeah, but a project like this is really more about, you know, trying to say something and trying to, uh, hopefully inspire folks and help people. And, you know, I think a lot about my kids. I've got a, a two year old and a, a one year old and, um, you know, just thinking about the work that I'm doing and the things that they might be proud of and say, Hey, my dad did this, you know, that, that means something to me now. Whereas of course, a few years ago, I didn't know anything about that. So it, it I guess the biggest takeaway for me has been looking at projects that come my way or projects that I think of and really defining for myself, what does success mean for this specific project? And then overall, what does, you know, a successful film career mean to me? Um, that's, I've spent a good bit of time with that and thought a lot about the folks who, you know, answered the question in the documentary and then, then um, you know, the, the takeaways that I got from that. That's actually the perfect segue into my next question is what is next for you? Do you have any other, you know, projects in the works, whether it's another documentary you want to do or another narrative? I do. I've got two in the works, actually. It looks like um, looks like I've gotten partial funding for a film I've been wanting to do for some time. It's um, basically I stole liberally, let's say, from, <laughs> from films like Tender Mercies and uh, Crazy Heart and these, you know, uh, films about these sort of older burnt out musicians who, you know, find a new life, if you will. And so I took that basic idea and except my protagonist is a 27 year old girl. Um, she's an Americana artist and, you know, has a lot of, a lot of history and struggles with alcoholism and a number of things like that. And, you know, I've, I've had the script around for a while and I just did a rewrite on it. And um, it looks like all things remain equal that we'll shoot that in, uh, late next spring, uh, 2020. And then in the meantime, um, I'm going to get started on another documentary. Having recently had kids, I don't think there's a lot of documentaries out there, at least I haven't found any, that are really, you know, get down to the bones of what it means to have a child, have your first child. So I want to interview um, parents of uh, a child who's, you know, around one, say 10 months to, to 14 months, um, and really dig into how it changed their life and their relationship. The down and dirty, if you will, up all that. And it's, it's something that interests me very much. And um, I hopefully, again, could be something that, you know, parents of one-year-olds can say, thank God I'm not alone. And parents who are going to have a one-year-old can get some sense of what it might be like. I know two friends of mine that would love to see a documentary like that. They have an, uh, a 10 month old boy. So they would, I'm sure they, <laughs> yeah. I, they would love to hear something like that. Yeah. It's, 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 a, it's such a, it's so life-changing and it's so, you know, there's so many facets to it. There's, you know, the mom shaming on social media. There's the, you know, particularly for women, the way their bodies change and the way they view their relationships. And, you know, it, it's, it's fascinating to me, but yes, that's, that will be next. That's fantastic. Now, I, I personally don't have any kids, but, you know, I have several friends who do, and they all say that, you know, from the first time that their first kid comes on, because some have multiple and some only have one, but they say when that first child is born, it truly does change everything. It does. And, it, it, you know, we could, just, it, <laughs> we could have a whole, whole other half hour conversation about that, but it, it truly does. And, and hopefully one day, if you want kids, you're lucky enough to have them. Um, it's a, it's such a joy. And such it's, it's hard, hard as hell. And there are days you just want to rip all your hair out, go running into the trees. <laughs> um, but that said, um, there, for me, there's never been a bigger joy in life. And, you know, and going home to my son running down the hallway, daddy, daddy, you know, it's kind of cliche, but it's just, it's just, man, every day just warms my heart. That's great. That's really great. 
Uh, last question I have for you: Do you have? Uh, is there any way for people to um, watch somewhere in the middle? Is it doing like a festival run? And then, do you have any social media or websites that you want to plug? Absolutely. Um, thank you for asking. Uh, so it is out. It just released uh, on Amazon and iTunes. And it is there, and please uh, love for folks to see it. And if you can leave a review, that would be great, or even just a, a rating. Uh, helps with Amazon sales considerably. And uh, it'll be on Vudu, I think, next week, and then on Google Play the following week. So it's out there, um, and please check it out. Uh, hopefully you enjoy it. And uh, as far as social media, you can follow Mule Films on Facebook. That's probably the best place to get most up-to-date and current information. Awesome. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview. It was great. Well, I so appreciate it and uh, look forward to talking to you again. Thank you once again to Jason Robbins, Wally Phelps, and Nathan Ives for taking the time to appear on the podcast this week. Next week, I'm going to be releasing the show on Wednesday because next Thursday is Thanksgiving. I'll be releasing it a day early, and I'll be reviewing the film Jojo Rabbit, with Steve Wise, the writer, director, and producer of Survey, also a multi-time guest on this podcast. He actually got to see Jojo Rabbit at the Orlando Film Festival, so we'll be talking about that. And just the overall film, it's really good. If you haven't seen it yet, see if it's playing in your area and go check it out. It's one of my favorite films of the entire year. I'll also be chatting with acting coach, actor and director Michelle Danner and she's got a really fascinating story from essentially growing up in the entertainment industry to becoming an actor then an acting instructor and now she's a director so really fascinating story she gives some great advice to those who are aspiring actors and filmmakers so definitely come back and check out next week's episode but until then you can check out past episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts Stitcher and Spotify just search for The Derek Diamond Experience, and don't forget to leave a review. If you want to follow the show on social media, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Podcast. And of course, thank you as always to my close friends, the Unicorn Wranglers, for providing the theme music for the podcast. Their songs Late Night drive Through" and Light and Jazzy can be found on their latest album, Greetings from the Space Van, which you can find on Apple Music, Google Play, and Spotify. And that's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you once again to Jason, Wally, and Nathan. Enjoy the rest of your week. Have a safe and fun weekend. Thank you for tuning in to another awesome episode of the Derek Diamond Experience. I am your host, Derek Diamond, and we'll see you guys back here on Wednesday. Okay.